This is Tommy's Outdoors 135. Have you heard that after 6,000 years we have a bison back in the UK? Oh, I hear you say, like, oh, it's a wrong bison. Well, yeah, it's a European bison, but the steppe bison is extinct. So I guess that's as good of a bison as we get. Um, obviously, I'm talking about the Wilder Bleen project, a project that is a cooperation between uh, Wildwood Trust and Kent Wildlife Trust. And that project received a lot of attention in uh, magazines like National Geographic, but also in the mainstream media. And uh, as always, when a project receives that much attention, there are very positive comments, as well as a lot of criticism. So to get to the bottom of it, what it is, uh, my guest today is Paul Whitfield. Paul is the Director General of Wildwood Trust, and we talk about the project, about its uh, aims and goals, about the criticism, about the future of the project, as well as if we ever have an opportunity to hunt bison in the UK. If that sounds interesting, then you should definitely subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of this show, or just go to newsletter.tommysoutdoors.com. Subscribe to the newsletter to always stay in touch with all the great stuff that we talk about here on the podcast. And uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, let's talk about bison. Paul, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great. Yeah, I, I was looking forward to this conversation. Listen, the, the most important thing, how, how is the release Bison doing? Absolutely fantastic. It, it's, it's, what, what, what's wonderful is, is we really expected them to have an impact on the environment, but we didn't think we would see anything for, for months. Um, but they've been out for two months now, and you can already see the impact they're having on the woodland. It's, wow. it's absolutely amazing. And they are okay. they're thriving out there, doing really well. Right, good to it's, it's good to hear you. It's good to hear that. And you know, most of people, um, well, at least a substantial portion of people know what we what we are talking about. But for those who like kind of know or maybe don't know at all, um, can you tell us about the project? Uh, what how the project started? What was the origin of the project? Um, how it came about and while you answering that question you can you can go as far as you know the wildwood trust and tell us you know how wildwood trust came about and what what you're doing and you, so you can take it as as big of a okay. lead to that as you want as you feel it's uh you know uh, appropriate to explain the project sure i mean i'll, I'll put it all in a, in a little bit of context so I'm director general at the Wildwood Trust. Wildwood Trust is a is a conservation charity. Um, everything we do is about protecting, conserving, and rewilding British wildlife. So we don't do any tropical stuff. We don't do anything outside the UK. It, it's all about native species here. Um, the charity was founded 20 years ago, and it was founded 20 years ago in a collaboration between Wildwood and Kent Wildlife Trust when we did the first UK beaver project in Kent at Ham Fen. And there was a, a little wildlife park here in Kent, and it was used to import the beavers for that project. Um, and one of the directors, one of the trustees at Kent Wildlife Trust, a guy called Ken West, saw, saw this site and thought it would make a fantastic charity. And so effectively, he started the work on creating Wildwood Trust. So 20 years ago to now, and the Wild Bleen project, which is the bison introduction, it's another partnership between Kent Wildlife Trust and Wildwood Trust. So it's fantastic to have uh, that long-term relationship with them. Um, so what, what, what is the Wild Bleen project, the bison project? Really, it's part of it is a rewilding project. Part of it is an experiment, but a huge part of it is a public engagement piece. So fundamentally, what we're trying to do is recreate a natural assemblage of herbivores in an English woodland. So in one area, a 200 hectare area of this woodland, we're going to have European bison, Exmoor ponies and Iron Age pigs. 
So between the three of them, they'll be creating huge dynamic change within that environment, changing the habitats around them, acting as ecosystems engineers, and really making it a more biodiverse, rich, resilient habitat. In another sort of 200 hectare area of the project, we've got the, the Iron Age pigs, the Exmoor ponies, but also longhorn cattle. So in almost exactly the same habitat, we're looking at a different species and seeing exactly what difference the bison compared to a longhorn cattle will have. And then there's another 100 hectares area, which Kent Wildlife Trust will continue to coppice and manage with volunteers and staff as, as we've done for decades. And really looking over the next 10, 20, 30 years at what differences take place in those different areas. You know, what, what species come back to the different areas, what diversity of habitat and vegetation there is, what diversity of plants there are, how much soil the carbon's holding. All this stuff will be monitoring in a huge amount of detail. Hmm. So what is the total area? Over uh, 100 hectares. 500 hectares. 500 hectares yeah. and and uh, but but they're like fenced out they, or they're yeah. or they connected to other like open land yeah. the area the bison are in has to be fenced off from the public um under uk legislation they're classed as dangerous wild animals um and so we cannot allow public access to where the bison are um but the other areas with the longhorn cattle and the pigs there'll still be public access as there always has been there's also a series of footpaths through the area and the bison, the different areas of the bison habitat will be connected with a series of tunnels. So people will be able to go into the area, but they won't be able to go into the habitat the bison are actually in. Yeah, I heard about, I, I read about those, those bison-sized tunnel tunnels. It's like, Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's very exciting. But like I say, another really important aspect of the project is, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole point behind it really is, this is a, it's an example of an innovative solution to the biodiversity and climate crisis. You know, we need to tackle both those problems together. And this is a project whereby we're using native species and, and introduced species to make habitats more resilient to the changes in climate that we're already seeing. So the, the stormy weathers and the floods that we're getting, the long droughts filled summers, the diseases we're getting like ash dieback, um, all these problems that we've already encountering, having a more complex woodland makes it more resilient to those changes. Mm, yes. And and tell me, like, what was the moment that you decided, well, not you, but you, you, you folks decided that this project is, you know, is a go? What was the, what was the trigger? Because you obviously you're, you're running the, like you said, both organizations are on for, for a number of years and you have different animals there already, lynx, wolf, and, and et cetera. But what was the moment they said like, yeah, you know what, this is, this is what we're gonna do. And what were the circumstances that you decided to pull the trigger on the project? Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting, I, I've been looking at a potential bison project in, in the Baleen Woodlands. So it's, it's the Baleen Woodlands, which are directly on the border, the, the fence line of Wildwood Trust, which are owned by Kent Wildlife Trust. And I've wanted to have bison out in that woodland for 10 years. <laughs> it's, it's been a, a long-term ambition. But it's what really was the catalyst for the change was a new chief executive at Kent Wildlife Trust, Evan Bowen-Jones, and the two of us talking about what we could work on collaboratively. And we came up with a whole, a whole series of ideas. And bison was just one of the many ideas that we had. Um, the more we talked about it, the more excited we got. And in order to sort of do some research, a group of us got a minibus over to the Netherlands um, to, to the Mars Horse and Kranzvelt projects over there. And I can't remember how many, there must have been 10, 12 of us on this minibus sort of headed across the channel pre-COVID, so about three years ago now. And I think the, the moment of change for, not, not for me, because I always thought it was a great idea, but for lots of other people, was standing in a field in Holland with a herd of about 23 European bison in front of us. No fence between us. They'd had a calf about two days earlier and it was amazing. It really was. It was a really powerful experience. Um, at one point, four of the male bison wandered sort of towards us and the rangers we were with just said, oh, let's back off slowly. So we backed off 10 meters and they stopped and they were grazing. And it was, 
we have to do this in England. We've got to give people this experience. Um, and there were a few people on the bus on the way over to Holland who were a bit skeptical. Why are we talking about bison? Why? Oh, you know, it doesn't seem like a, a good idea. It's very risky. And on the way back, everyone knew we had to do it. So that I think that was the moment of change. And then we, we were looking for funding and we were able to secure um, significant funds off the players, the People's Postcode Lottery. And that really enabled us just to move ahead. So we were funded for the first three years in terms of sort of the, the key salaries for the Bison Rangers, the infrastructure, all the fencing, uh, all the public engagement that needs to happen for that first period of time, and also to, to bring the Bison in. So that's, you know, it was a long-term ambition that was catalyzed, then we were able to fund it. So we had that funding all through lockdown and COVID, so we could just get on with this job as, as much as we could. So yeah, as a a really interesting journey, really. Fantastic. And listen, what, was there any uh, le legislation um, also, I presume, involved some sort of a permissions, some licenses, something like that? Uh, absolutely. And, and one of the problems we've got is that the current legislative system is not designed for projects like this. The, these are new ideas that haven't been done before, and they're just, there aren't the licenses in place for them, really. So at the moment, uh, in order to hold a European bison, we've got to have either a zoo license, so the premises would need a zoo license, which is totally inappropriate for this project, um, or you need a Dangerous Wild Animals Act license. But that's designed for someone who's got a poisonous snake at home or, or, a, <laughs> or a large cat that lives in their garden. Um, they're not designed for a, a 500 hectare project. You, know, you, you fill in the form, it's like, what's the address? <laughs> you know, how are you going to contain the animal? You know, what, what, what's its cage and its dimensions and things like this? So it's, it's just not designed for this at all. Um, but we've worked really well with the, with the authorities and we have all the licenses in place for it to work. The other side of thing that's made things really quite complex is, is the transport of animals. So if you're transporting a farm animal from Europe to a farm in England, that's fine, it's straightforward. Even after Brexit, they put systems in place. Transporting a, a zoo animal to a zoo is quite complicated. Lots of challenges from Brexit. But actually transporting a, a semi-wild animal or a zoo animal into a rewilding project, there's no process. It just doesn't exist. There isn't, there isn't an import and export license system that links up for that. So that's been massively, massively challenging. Uh, okay. I thought I thought you're gonna say that that was like a, easier to do, but no, it was massively no, changed because no. there's no process. Like, oh, how are you gonna do that? Uh, absolutely, that no one's designed a process to make it happen. So we've got all the paperwork. So our, our bull is coming from Germany at the end of this month. So we've got all the G German paperwork to export and all the UK paperwork to import, and they don't match up. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so we're working with everyone to to make that work. It's yeah, it's very it's very difficult. Huge amount of work involved. Would you say that that was the most difficult part of the project? Just yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I heard similar stories about the people who are reintroducing uh, cheetahs, I think, and a similar story that to the last moment they were going somewhere and matching signatures and stuff like that. So Absolutely. It, it's a really complex system that doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. But you had a bison already in Wildlife Trust before, right? Yeah, we've got two male bison within the park. Um, they are two male bison that are access to the breeding program. So they're just within our park as, as sort of part of our sort of education uh, process. So people get to see them and learn about them. Uh, but they're not going out into this project. They've spent too long in sort of in sort of a captive situation where they're very used to being fed. Um, and lots of people. Uh, okay. Are, so what they were we want, not suitable for that. Not no, not suitable. So what we want are our animals that have been that have lived in a sort of a, a semi-wild large area where they've had to forage for their own food. Once they're in the project, we are not planning to feed them at all. They will be living off what is growing in the woodlands. Yeah, yeah, ideally. And um, our bison are just very pampered, and they would just come looking for people to give them food. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Not wild enough. Uh, no, not wild absolutely. at all. Listen. So what was like? What was this like one moment? I just want to know, like, what was this like one moment when you knew it's going to happen? And, and how do you feel? How did you feel then? It was like, I presume it was like you were, you were massively excited about it. I, I suppose, I mean, it, 
particularly with the complexities around importing. So the, the three bison that are out in the project at the moment, there's, there's an older matriarch who came down from the Highland Wildlife Park up in Scotland and two young females that came from Fota in Southern Ireland. And so the three of them were introduced to each other in this big corral system that we built. And then I suppose the day it was, it was real was when we opened the gate and let them out into that first area of the bleem. Um, and you know, you, you're working with animals, you never know what's gonna happen. And so we opened the gate, we had the world's photographers sort of on a platform watching and waiting. Oh God, what are they gonna do? Um, but the matriarch sort of walked out into the sunshine. This was two months ago. It was predicted to be the hottest day of the year. So we were doing this at half six in the morning to, to, so it wasn't too hot. Um, so she just walked out into the sunshine, sort of stood there, posed for the cameras. She turned around and sort of signaled to the two youngers, two younger bison, and they followed her out and they all stood around for a little while and they just walked off into the woodland. And it was, I, it was really emotional actually. It was, they're out, they're finally here, we've got them in and they are, they're out doing their thing. That was amazing. I could I can imagine that, but, and I'm surprised that it was till the last moment. I thought you're gonna say something like, "Oh, when I had a signature on this paperwork," or like, but you were you didn't believe it's gonna happen until the actual bison walk out of the cage. I, I knew it would happen. I just didn't know when because obviously, with you know, we 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 were when we got awarded the funding, we were supposed to be going up to Scotland for a big gala dinner when David Attenborough was going to be there. We were going to get give him the big check to make the project happen. So once we had the funding, we knew we would make it happen. Um, but obviously that dinner was just at the start of COVID and it got canceled at the last minute. So it never happened. And so we had a video call where we were, we were given the news. And so I knew it would happen then, but I didn't, I didn't really believe it till they, the bison were in socialize and then and then out. <laughs> ah, yes. Good. They are they're good. They're out. Listen, Paul, um, What is the what is the project like ultimately ultimate aim? You know, I, I, I know that you said that yeah, it is an experiment and we're gonna look see how they're managing a woodland and there are potential benefits, including engagement with public. But what would be like a, the ultimate aim of the project? Like maybe even like like a success criteria where you said like, oh, that experiment is like fully successful. And I'm and I'm saying, you know. Not necessarily 10 or 30 years from now, but maybe 50 years from now. It's just, just, just curious, like what is in your head as the ultimate holy grail of that project? Absolutely. I mean, I suppose there's two. The, 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 the short-term real ambition of the project was to show it can be done, to show that it works, and to inspire other people to do it. Um, and Because, you know, 500 hectares, that's lovely. But in order to make this work, to make it actually have an impact, We need lots of these projects. We need much bigger areas. So at the moment, I'm talking to five other organizations that are potentially looking at doing these sorts of projects in the future. So that to me is a huge tick. You know, we've shown we can do it, starting to show it works. There's lots more data to be got from that, but starting to show it works, but also inspiring other people to do it and showing that, you know, you can do it. I mean, people are saying, you know, why hasn't anyone done it before? Well, it's because it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly complicated and really expensive um, to do it the first time and, and learn all the complexities and, and find the way around it. So, so that's the short-term ambition. And I think, I think we've done a fantastic job with that. The engagement the project had is phenomenal. It's absolutely amazing. Um, but the long-term vision, the long-term you know, sort of dream of this is actually it, within, within Kent, there's, there's the Bleen Woodlands. It's one of the biggest areas of ancient woodland in, in the UK. And if you look on a map where, where you see Canterbury, there is actually fragmented in a huge arc sort of from the east all the way around the north to the west, uh, little bits of this woodland. The ultimate aim is to connect all that forest, all that woodland with connected habitat and have effectively a huge area of regenerated sort of woodland and nat natural spaces where there are all the missing native species back in it. Let's say all of them, not all of them. We probably have bears and wolves in Kent, um, but bison and pine martins and red squirrels and all the, all the species that we've lost. So I actually have a huge area all around Kent that's, that's full of those species. And again, to duplicate that sort of thing across the country. You know, Wildwood was created and named because what we want to do is, 
is recreate the wild wood. If you go for a walk in the woods in the UK, you don't see any animals. They aren't, there aren't any. You might see a, a gray squirrel, you know, an invasive American species. Um, our, our, we've killed or our, our, almost all our animals. Um, but what we need is we need those animals back. Recreating the food webs and the ecosystems, you know, processes that are just missing from our countryside. If we bring those back, it will make it richer. We'll create space for other species, but also create a far more vibrant, engaging world for us to engage with. Reconnect people with nature. Yeah. I was, you know, uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions that are kind of like a devil's advocate advocate questions, really. Mm. One of them, one, one of them, I, uh, I'm going to jump ahead of myself, but one of them will be like, but why? Why we need that? You know, yeah. it's like the common argument is like, we kill those animals for a reason, right? Wolves are bad and bears are, uh, you know even worse and like why 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 we need all those those animals back what's wrong about gray squirrel um i mean there's nothing wrong with the gray squirrel it it's just it's not it's not the native species in this country and it carries uh, just example of the gray squirrel you know it carries a virus that kills the red squirrels you know it carries squirrel pox and so the red squirrel population you know just in the past 50 years has completely declined because of an invasive species They do a lot of damage to trees. They eat a lot of lot of eggs as well. So they're not a they're not a particularly helpful species. The, the the purpose behind this really is, you know, the UK's biodiversity intactness is terrible. You know, we we've lost so many species. We've lost, you know, and and we're still losing them. You have hedgehogs are in decline. If we don't do anything, we will have lost our turtle dove population completely within 10 years. So it's not just bad it's terrible and it's getting worse if we don't reverse the loss of biodiversity and do things to bring it back then in 20 years time it's going to be like a desert here there won't be anything and each species we lose it's not just that species it's 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 connection with other species you know animals don't live in isolation they have really complex relationships and certain species like like the bison and the beaver They have huge impacts on their environments that create niches and spaces for other species. Um, as recent research just came out of Poland showing that birds nesting in the woods where bison live have a better success rate with their eggs hatching because they use bison fur to line their nests, which gives it better insulation. Now, who, who knew that? Bison nibbling on bark creates little tiny bits of damage, which actually enable certain species of insects to thrive within the woodland, which if they're not there, they can't live. You know, there's huge complexity in nature that we don't understand. And wherever man tries to manage nature, we do it in a very clean, very simplistic, very tidy way. And it's not what nature needs at all. We also don't understand what nature needs. You know, for decades, people have managed an area like the Bleen. So coppicing sweet chestnut so it's at a right age the way nightingales can nest in it you know that's what nightingales need that's what all the textbooks say and you get a, an experiment like nep where they let their farm go completely wild in places and they end up with these huge banks of sort of bramble filled hedges and guess what they're absolutely full of nightingales that's where they want to be but we've tidied all that out of our countryside they don't want to be in chestnut coppice, it's the last refuge they've been able to survive. It's not where they want to be at all. So we're creating these habitats thinking, oh, that's what they need, but it, it, it's not at all. You know, nature creates the processes for nature. And when we interfere, we tend to do it very simply and, and very often get it wrong. Yeah, I, I, I was actually, uh, I was uh, talking on a podcast with uh, Paul Rick Galbraith. And, and he wrote his book about the British birds. And there was exactly this argument that, that, we, that these animals are, are nesting, these birds are nesting in certain places because this is their last refuge. It's not Absolutely. optimal for them by any stretch of no. imagination. It's just this is where they stayed. And like, oh, I guess they need more of that. Yeah. So, uh, for example, the red squirrels at the moment are living in little pockets of really unfavorable conifer plantation up in Scotland and in Cumbria and places like that. That's not where they want to be. They want to be in the broadleaf woodlands full of acorns and, and hazelnuts. 
but they've been outcompeted there by the grey squirrels. That's their last refuge. It's not where they want to be at all. No choice. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess we're going to come back later on into the biodiversity aspect of it. Um, tell us a little bit more about the bison, like about the bison as an as an animal. It's it's a it's a type of really wild cattle. Um, so if if you can just lay it out, you know, this, this for people to imagine the size of the animal, the role in the ecosystem, you know. Ideally, what predator that does it have natural predators ultimately does it not and 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 all these this this stuff kind of from the biological perspective sure. yeah so european bison they're, they're fascinating animals they are they're, they're large they're europe's largest land mammal um so a full grown male will stand about eye to eye with me about six foot tall um weigh about eight hundred kilos and run about thirty kilometers an hour so a very large, able to run very fast. They very rarely run. Um, it's very unusual to see a bison running. They're very, they're actually very calm animals. It's very unusual for them to be aggressive unless um, you are threatening their young. Um, so they're not, they're not an aggressive species at all. But males and females both have a really impressive set of horns, and they have an incredibly rough, thick coat. Um, and the the interesting thing about the coat is they shed that every winter. And so they spend a lot of time rubbing against trees to shed that coat. And actually what's really interesting, it's one of the, the impacts they have on the environment, is as they rub against trees to shed their coat, the native trees which evolved with large species like bison, so oak trees and birch trees, they aren't really affected by this. But the non-native conifer plantation that's out in the woodland here, they just rip the bark off those. So just by rubbing against the trees, they ring bark those trees and they die. Oh. So all through the Blean area, there's big areas of non-native conifer, sort of Corsican pine and things like that, really low value trees that were planted in the 80s. Um, but they will, they will kill areas of those trees, create standing deadwood, which is absolutely amazing for insects and bats and birds but also allow the light into the forest floor. Because obviously dense conifer plantation, there's no light at all. Nothing grows underneath. And in all those spaces, you'll get regrowth. So you'll get oak trees regrowing, shrubs, all sorts of things. So you'll get that natural regeneration of the forest. But again, in complex pockets throughout the woodland, rather than humans going in and clearing an area and letting everything regrow at the same height, and they all, you end up with single-story conifer or single-story regrowth of birch, which is what we've got in, in the Blean here where conifers have been cleared. You, know, you just get thousands and thousands of birch trees all growing at the same height at the same time. And again, there isn't that diversity or that... You don't have these age classes of the trees. Absolutely. And you can look across the Blean and you can see all the different areas that have been managed by people, all at each area at the same height of forest, the same species, monocultures. And that, that's, that's the problem. So it will, they'll mix all of that up in an incredibly sort of interesting way. Um, but they also, particularly in winter, eat a lot of bark. So plants out there like the, the willow and the sweet chestnut, which there's a lot of in the woodland, they will eat the bark of those at certain times of the year. And again, that will kill the growth above them. But these are species that will naturally coppice from the base. So again, instead of sending humans in to do all the all the manual coppicing, the bison will do it in a complex way throughout the woodland as, as they browse and as they eat. They're also eating plants like the, the bracken, which is a huge problem whenever you clear areas. Um, they're just eating it as it grows, which is fantastic. Um, they're eating the brambles uh, in places. And they're also, there's, there's bits of rhododendron through the woods. And what's interesting, they don't seem to eat it, but they just trample it and kill it. So, yeah, whoa doing a great job already. Um, so in terms of the bison, they uh, they live in herds, in family herds. So at the moment we've brought in, like I say, a, a matriarch and two young females. And the matriarch is, she's the boss of that herd. Uh, when we introduce them, the two young females, they they've never met her before. She spent about two hours just sort of bossing them around, sort of literally shoving them around the area with her horns, bullying them, making Establishing sure- Establishing who's the boss. Absolutely. But it only took about two hours. You know, there wasn't overly aggressive. She didn't harm them, but she, they knew. Um, and then within three, four hours, they were all eating the same, same branch effectively. 
and now they're a really close little group. And that's it. She's the boss. And when we introduce the male, she will still be the boss. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And sure. as the young car, as the young bison produce calves, again, they will stay very closely in that group, and they will they will learn from the older females. They will watch what they eat at different times of the year, and become a very close, happy unit uh, within that area. And the bulls sort of stay around the edges. And eventually, once we've got more more bulls in the area, they will start to challenge each other for for mating rights, really. So a really interesting dynamic, very much a sort of a herd animal. They will follow the matriarch round and um, effectively do what she does. But a very, a very peaceful animal. A big part of what we want to do is, is like I say, give people that experience of being in the woods with a with a huge, potentially scary wild animal. See that it's safe, but teach them to respect the animal, to keep a safe distance. You know, not to make loud noises, and and that's a big part of the project is giving people that excitement of being there, but also that that respect. And you know, as I say, in this country, we we've, we've lost that experience of being in nature with wild animals. Just just doesn't exist. Um, so we're trying to recreate that excitement and that that respect and that connection. Yeah. So you already outlined the uh, next steps uh, to to have a male and then have a first offspring. And then kind of like a probably different age classes of these animals there. And then kind of like how, how, how many ultimately you would expect, you would hope to have. Well, in the, in the current area we've got, we've got a license to hold 20 animals. Oh, excellent. So we can get a decent sized herd, but part of, part of the whole project is really closely monitoring the impact they have on the environment. Because clearly this isn't a fully open wild space where they can just explore wherever they want to. There's no predators in there. So it's not going to be naturally controlled as it would be in the wild. So there's going to have to be some level of human management of, of those numbers as, as they expand and as they grow. So all the animals within this project are all animals from the EEP, the European Endangered Species Programme. So The offspring from the project, we're hoping, will be going out to to other projects in the future. When you were setting out to to do this project, to implement this project, you surely knew about they're going to have a lot of pushback. A lot of people will be having negative opinions, and you know, you you knew that for sure. You knew that absolutely. Yeah. Um, did, did you did you maybe the question is does the pushback you received is pretty much something you expected or was it more or was it less? Uh, actually less. Um, the vast majority of feedback we've had has been incredibly positive. People are really excited about the project. They're really enthusiastic about it and they are very, um, really interested to see what happens. Um, you know, the international press we've had for the project has been mind blowing. You know, on the week, The bison went out. We had more than a thousand separate news pieces about the project. It was on the front page of three of the UK broadsheet newspapers, which doesn't happen for conservation projects. It was it was huge news and almost completely positive, which is amazing. Um, so the bits of pushback we've got are actually pretty small. Um, the, one of the very common ones is, you know, why are you using European bison? Um, why don't you just use cattle? And actually, part of the project is we're doing that comparison. We're seeing, we think, and I personally think the bison are going to have a huge impact compared to cattle. You know, you, you can see that, you know, they get these areas of really thick forest and they just walk through it. it. They just walk through it at a normal pace. They just bulldoze their way straight through the middle of it without even blinking. I can't see the longhorn cattle doing the same thing. They'll have some similar impacts, but I think the bison will have a much bigger, faster impact, to be honest, on, on the woodland. Um, so, yeah, people are saying, what, why use bison? People have said European bison are not a native species. So, Oh, oh thank you. I was going to actually ask you about that because that's yeah. a quite quite common. So can you clear that, that out? Like, with, were they ever roamed Britain or not? What's the situation? There is no fossil evidence that we had European, ice, European bison in the UK. Um, That's not to say they were never here, but we haven't found the fossils. They might turn up at some point, but European bison, there's no fossil record of them ever having been in the UK. What we did have though was the steppe bison and we had the auroch. So the steppe bison is a very similar species. The auroch was the huge wild cow that we used to have. 
both of those species are now completely extinct. So we can't use those. Those are the animals that would have done the job of a European bison in the UK woodlands, but they've gone. So the European bison is the closest we have to those two species. But also genetically, the European bison has the genetics of both the steppe bison and the auroch. It's, it's effectively a hybrid. So it's, no, it's not a native species, but it's the closest we've got to the engineer species that we used to have that we can't bring back because they're extinct. So the steppe, so like on the European continent, we had a steppe bison and European bison. And I, I pre presume the steppe bison was more westwards. And and now and these are the ones that we have as fossil record in the in Britain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as you know, this is a similar situation like with wild boar in Ireland. Um, there's there there's like no fossil record, but there, you know, like we're not looking for that fossil record particularly hard. That's that's a one one thing, right? So it's 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 like there's no fossil record because someone by accident found it. There's not like project to, to find it. And and there, you know, I always say like, why would let's approach it from the other perspective? Like, what would have to happen so they're not there? Yes, right. Like, and and very often, if you do this like a uh, logical thinking and looking at the habitat and looking at the other species distributions, like, well, there's no good reason why they wouldn't be there. No, it's just we don't have a fossil record. So it's kind of similar situation. Yeah. And and if you look at the habitat that they do well in across Europe, there's absolutely no reason why they wouldn't have been here. You know, it's, you know, the, the habitat in the Bleen is almost exactly the same as a habitat at Mosshorst in, in Holland, you know, and they are thriving there. So it's, it's the right habitat for them. And like I say, the key thing here is that they're, they're doing a job as an ecosystem engineer. It's not so much the bison themselves, it's, it's, it's the impact they have on the environment just by being bison in that space. You know, they'll, They're already creating dust baths, which create these fantastic sort of basking spots for reptiles. You know, they, they just create these little spaces for other species to thrive in. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So that that's that's cleared out. That's that situation. Probably the other the other one the other common um, argument by the opponents is like, oh, it's a vanity project. It's just a zoo. Why are you doing this? Right? You heard that too as well. What would you? What would be your answer to that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not. You know, the reality is, is Wildwood Trust operates two animal parks. You know, we've got bison you can come and see. You know, we've got wolves and, you know, bears and otters and all, all the UK species. You can come and see them within a zoo environment. That's what that is. This project isn't, isn't that at all. You know, these bison are going to be out in a 200 hectare area. The purpose of the project is to enrich that environment, to make it wilder, to make it more biodiverse. Yes, there are going to be opportunities to see those bison. There'll be opportunities to go in and have guided tours with the bison because we want to engage people with the bison. We want to excite people about the project, connect them with nature and inspire them to do projects themselves. You know, at the moment, if you read uh, you know, about climate change and biodiversity, it's 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 bad news. It's terrible. Everything's on fire. Everything's dying. Everything's going extinct. It's awful. And one of the problems with that is it disempowers people. It gives people a feeling of hopelessness and helplessness and that they can't do anything and that they won't do anything and there's no point. A project like this exists to inspire people to do something, to make a change, even if it's a small one. If everyone starts making small changes, it will make a huge difference. Yeah, this is not a huge, huge geographically large project but it will lead to lots and lots of other projects in the future and that's that's exciting it's good news and that's so a lot of people need to hear at the minute yeah you're a, you're a, you guys are like a trailblazers for that thing yeah uh, absolutely so no it's it's not a vanity project at all most of the time the bison are going to be out in the woodland doing their thing and they won't be visible you won't be able to see them You know, we built a big platform at Wildwood here in Kent where you can go up and you can look over a big area of the woodland. But that then stretches for another two kilometers into the distance. And, you know, there's a watering hole there and it will be one of the best spots to see the bison. These tunnels would be great spots to maybe see a bison. But most of the time, you, people aren't going to see the bison. They're going to be out doing their stuff. What hopefully people will see is the explosion of biodiversity, the birds, the insects, everything else thriving within that environment. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, you know, it's part of like if if someone wants to be against something, they always find a reason, right? Oh, it's a it's a zoo. No, you won't see the bison. Oh, what's the point? You won't see the bison, right? Like it's like it's always you can you can find the argument against it. Listen, yeah. uh, two two things I just want to just to close off on the on the bison and biology of a bison. The the European bison, this is a larger species than the American bison. The the one we know from the you know. The, YouTube videos, people yeah. getting, you know, lifted in the air and and stuff like that. What's happening in the Yellowstone and so on. So this is what this is. I think one of the few animals where European um, variety is bigger actually than the American one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's not a huge difference, but the European ones are are a little bit bigger. Um, the American ones also tend to live in bigger herds, so you can get vast, vast herds of American bison. Um, you know, there's, there's a guy who lives in Canada who has a herd of 7,000 American bison on a huge project in Canada. Um, I think there's only 7,000 European bison in the entire world at the moment. <laughs> um, I mean, actually, that's one of the really interesting things about the European bison is they went extinct in the wild at the end of the war. Um, and every single European bison now has been bred from zoo animals. Um, I think 16 founder animals are the parents of every single of those 7,000 European bison that we've got back now. So it's a real success story for, for captive breeding programs. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, they're, they're a little bit bigger than the American bison. It's really interesting because the theory was always that American bison lived in huge herds, lived on plains, ate grass. European bison lived in smaller herds, live in the woods, eat trees. As we know more, it's actually more complex than that. And actually... If you let American bison behave naturally, they browse a lot more than just grass. And they do eat bark and leaves and twigs. But the heavily managed um, artificial herds that are used for sort of food production just live on grass because they don't have that um, important matriarch system where the matriarch's teaching the younger animals what they can eat. So they just eat grass. But where you let the natural herds develop, they seem to eat more browse. Um, and again, with the European bison, the idea that they just live in forests, well, actually in Belazwilia in Poland, if they keep them in the forest all year round, they need to feed them in winter because there's not enough food for them. The ones that are thriving and don't need the supplemental feeding actually live in a mosaic habitat. So there is woodland, but there's also grassland and there's heath. You know, there's a population living in um, salt marshes and dune systems and doing really well. So actually, it's this idea that we know where they live because that's where we found them isn't necessarily true. They can actually live in quite a wide area and can be quite adaptable to, to different foods and different habitats. Yeah, this is this is like uh, often people underestimate the importance of animal actually learning from each other absolutely uh, you know it's like oh they're all instinctively no and like no they don't they actually they actually learn from from the mothers and from the other animals in a, in a, in a herd that's, <laughs> that's and the importance of that family herd i think is really important that's why like i say we've started with these three females we're bringing a bull in that's a completely new bloodline in the uk and so they will be breeding and creating a natural family herd within within the project. That's that's excellent. And are you envisaging uh, providing them some sort of a supplemental feed? Uh, no, no. We are we are hoping and we believe there's enough food within the environment that they will not need supplementary feeding. But we are monitoring their body condition on a very regular basis, and we will look at it throughout the winter. And if if they need supplementary feeding, we will look at whether we should do that or not. Yeah, I guess um, there's I, also winters are not that harsh in in UK. I know, no. like 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 in 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 Poland, there there's still like a supplemental feeding going on for, for yeah, bison. absolutely. Uh, we we think there's enough food in terms of um, grasses and heathers and bark within the area that will keep them going through the winter, and actually, we think what they will do as they spend more time in the area is they will create a habitat that has creates more food for them throughout the year. Yes, yes, uh, because it's going to be more biodiverse and more, more plants uh, will grow. Uh, absolutely, and they will clear areas of sort of dense forest where there's no undergrowth and create much more shrubs, much more grass. Um, I mean, it's a totally different subject, but we've got European brown bears within our park, and there's an area where they have created a lawn. 
There was no grass really within their area, but every spring when they come out of hibernation, one of the first things they do is they eat grass. And so they have almost cultivated a big lawn area by their pond where they will eat that grass and keep it at the right level. And it will, it's incredibly healthy and green. Literally on the other side of the path where we've got our wolves and they're in exactly the same habitat, there is no grass at all. Yeah. And, you know, who knew that bears created lawns? <laughs> I would love to have a bear. Listen, will those bison ever roam free? Ah, I mean, 50 years, 60 years. Do you think Probably it not. can happen? If, if I'm, I'm being honest, probably not. Um, e even that project in Canada I was talking about, and, and this is one of the things that does annoy me a little bit about some of the criticism, like, oh, it's fenced, so it's a zoo or it's a vanity project. That herd of 7,000 bison in Canada have a fence around their area. It's a 200,000 acre area, I believe, but there are fences. And there are fences to stop the bison going on to cattle grazing areas, to keep them away from roads and, and from railways. So I see bison in the UK probably always having to have a fence around them. But what I really want is for those fences to get bigger and the spaces inside to get bigger. So we end up with sort of a fence around a national park that has free roaming bison within it and cattle grids and things like that. That's what I would love to see. But I'd, realistically, no, I think we're always going to need a fence around our bison. But I want it to be a fence around a vast area. Not yeah, and this is this is this this argument, right? I, I I spoke about it many times, and it often comes up when you talk about uh, hunting concessions in Africa. It's like, oh, it's a high fence. Yes, but you can walk three days, and you don't even see the fence. Absolutely. So, so is it still fence? Is it still high fence area? So it's a, it's kind of like it it almost should be uh, discussed in terms of the area available of the habitat available rather than whether there is a fence or not because no, no, I, I, com I completely agree i mean the, the reality is is, is you know in, in england specifically there is no real wild spaces left we're having to create them and so there are going to be compromises but and we've got to be honest and realistic about that you know we've got to create it as wild and as large and as connected as we possibly can but we also need to keep space for farming for food production for roads for train lines you know, whenever we're doing these species reintroductions, we've got to be realistic and truthful about those things. You know, we've got to work with what exists and with people's concerns. But there is still there is still space to do this on a really big scale. Yeah. Listen, and I'm good, I'm just gonna go there and ask straight away. Do you see like at some time like, this big fenced area? Why don't we have why why we can't have a wolves and bears and the whole deal in a large fenced area? Would that happen? Would you think? I hope so. I don't know about bears. Uh, for some reason, people are terrified of bears. It's a long time since we've had bears here. I mean, it's a thousand. People are more terrified of wolves than bears, by the looks of it. There's a there's a cultural fear of the wolf. Yeah, but well, European grey wolves are not a problem for people. They don't attack people. They're a very nervous, shy animal. They are not aggressive at all. Um, but there is a real cultural fear around the wolf that doesn't really exist for bears. Whereas actually. If you look at Europe, bears cause a lot more problems than wolves. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't yeah. hear that. I, I, uh, it, 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 more in terms of uh, destruction of property than than, than attacking. Oh people. yes, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you have a teddy bear and like always, like a bear is this this nice, you know, cuddly. And wolf yeah. is always big, bad wolf. Absolutely. It's, and, it's like I said, it's cultural. Yeah, that's going to take a lot of work. Um. We should, have, in my personal opinion, we should have wolves back in our countryside in this country. They have made their way across every country in Europe now. There are wolves living wild in every single country in Europe. They won't get here because of the channel, so we need to help them. But we are, we're many, many years away from people being ready to accept that. Uh, but we need to work on it. You know, we're, we're still, you know, lynx is a species that we haven't got that people are talking about a reintroduction of at the early stages and that there's pushback and there's objection to that we, there's no reason why we shouldn't have links you know there's there's never been an attack by links on a human yeah like with, with links it's just you know like when i when i i follow this these um even the recent attempts it's like at some point it was like you're talking about three cats and yep. they have a GPS collars and, and some people are up their arms. It's like, oh, you know, I, I just kudos to people who are not getting discouraged. 
Yeah, because part, because part of me says like, oh God, is is it even worth the effort for for three spaniel sized cats? Yeah, you know? and links are are beautiful, but they're so secretive. You could be walking through a wood that had a population of links, and you would never see one. I was yeah. talking with the with the scientist who was who was uh, researching links for like ten years, fifteen years, and he's seen links once. And that was when he was driving with the family in his car, not even doing research. Like, oh, look at that, it's links. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but again, it's, you know, we, we've lost our predators completely in the UK. You know, we, we're, we're working on reintroductions, looking at pine martins and, and wildcats. So we, we've got a captive breeding program here, and we're looking at a, a wildcat reintroduction in the next few years. And hopefully that will pave some of the way for, for a links reintroduction. Um, a lot of the stakeholder work is starting to happen slowly up in Scotland around links, and that's fantastic. You know, we're just going to we're going to work on this slowly, bring people along with us, and, and you know, listen, listen to people's concerns. You know, um, you're talking about a, a, a wildcat reintroduction, and local farmers are worried. You know, are they going to eat my sheep? And one of the most effective things to do is to take a taxidermy cat with you and go. No, they're only this big. <laughs> Mm, yeah. you know, it, it's a large it's it's the size of a large domestic cat it's not going to eat sheep it's not going to be a problem for farmers but people people need to know that they, they need the information to make the decisions yeah 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 we'll see hopefully hopefully we'll uh we'll have a links uh i was talking like i said i was talking with scientists who was talking about links there, there there is a small probability they might have some impact on the sheep but not like a massive um, listen, in that area where you have bison, do you have a deer there as well? No, at the moment, there's, there aren't almost no deer in this area of, of Kent at all. Is so, it on purpose or is it just... Um, I think they just, where they have come back, they've been, they've been shot. Um, okay. and so there are, there are none in this area at all, but there mm -hmm. are in other areas, yeah. Okay, okay. So, so together, like in this large fenced area with bison, there's no, no deer in there? No, there's no deer at all. Okay. Okay. Um, listen, I need to ask this question. Um, do you see in the future, in a distant, again, with, I'm talking like 50 years, maybe, maybe more. Do you see ever any limited hunting opportunities for bison? Um, I, I don't know about hunting. I can see in the future there being bison projects where the bison that are access to the project because we don't have wolves or bears to predate them. Um, I can see them going into into food. Um, that the again, and going back to that that Canadian project, the excess male bison from that population are put into the food chain. But that is free range, organic, carbon positive meat. That is, I've not tried it, but it's supposed to be the best bison meat you can possibly buy. And I personally don't have a huge problem with that. You know, you need to manage the population. You know, we, we need to manage the population of deer that are out in the countryside because if you have too many animals, they're damaging to the environment. And we don't have a balanced system where nature can just look after itself with, with predators. So I see that in the future, whether they be hunting or not, I, I really don't know. We're going to be wrapping this thing up. So I'm just going to have like a few like a more general questions. And, and one that I absolutely have to ask is about the word, the term rewilding. We already talked about rewilding. We've already already used the word rewilding. But the, the amount of emotions uh, it sparks when you mention rewilding, what's your like as a person who's like on the, on the forefront of it all? Do you think that using the term rewilding came to the point that is like not helpful um, and we probably should talk about conservation, reintroduction, restorations, other R's, just not rewilding. Or you think that the term describes something so distinctively different than, than the other R's or conservation that it's necessary to use it? It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, the Wilder Bleem project, the bison introduction, we're, we're calling that a wilding project. We're not calling it a rewilding project because actually uh, the reason for it is rewilding suggests you're trying to go back to something. You know, you're going back to the Pleistine or, or something like this. And, and the truth is, and the reality is, is you, we can't go back to anything. Things have changed fundamentally. So what we can do is we can we can reintroduce animals, we can put back processes that will make it wilder. 
And whether you call it rewilding or wilding or restoration conservation, personally, I don't care. I don't think it matters. I think so long as we are helping nature, we're restoring biodiversity, we're bringing species back, we're creating space and complexity for nature to thrive. I don't care what anyone calls it. it it's something I don't have a lot of time for debates about. And you see it on social media. Oh, they call it a rewilding project. And it's not. I think it's a distraction. I don't think it matters. That's, that's my personal opinion. But sometimes it, it, it's, it is quite an important word. And it's interesting. Wildwood was always set up as a rewilding charity. We always wanted to rewild. Uh, we wanted to reintroduce you know, herbivores to recreate ecosystems processes. We want to reintroduce beavers to rest, restore wetlands. That's, that, that's sort of what we're all about. But we didn't use that word for the first 12 years of our existence because it was so controversial. Um, it, was, it was a maverick term. You didn't want to be associated with it. So we're quite proud to be a, a, a conservation charity that promotes and actively does rewilding. I think it's important and it's it's gained critical mass now, finally, you know, after being a dirty word and people not wanting to talk about it, people are excited about rewilding. So I think it's a word that galvanizes people in a way that, you know, conservation, restoration and ecosystem services just doesn't. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things. It can be very useful for PR. People, it gets people's attention, gets the negative attention as well. Exactly. Um, could equally, but, it can, it can equally throw a spanner in the works. Like you said, you didn't even use that for the first yeah. number of years. Uh, absolutely. So it can create opposition. And that's where I think you just need to be very careful. So there are projects we're involved with where, you know, you could call it a rewilding project if you wanted to, but it's probably stretching a bit. But actually, we know in the area we're talking about it, people will have a negative association with that word. So we won't use the word, but we're doing the same work. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's that's very, uh, um, very good approach. Yeah, um, and I think the problem is people will associate rewilding with we're bringing back wolves and bears. <laughs> and yes, say that, rewilding, you say rewilding, I think wolf. <laughs> absolutely. And, and the other side of that is people will criticize a project like this and say you can't call it rewilding because there aren't predators. It's not rewilding unless there are predators. And again, I don't think it really matters. If we could introduce predators, then great, but it wouldn't work in this. It's a too small an area and people aren't ready for them. So we're doing everything we can where we can to make it as natural and wild as possible, but within the limitations that exist. And if we sit here and say, well, we're not going to do anything till we can create a complete ecosystem with predators, well, we're going to sit here doing nothing for another 50 years and yeah. we don't have time for that. And probably then you're going to do nothing at all because you're going to Absolutely. be too late. <laughs> yeah. If you wait till things are perfect, you won't do anything. Yep. We're yep. doing everything we can now. <laughs> Absolutely. Paul, listen, what do you how do you think is uh what is the future of wildlife in Britain? Um you know, where is it is it are we are we really the best case scenario are these sort of a uh, fortress conservation projects uh or do you think that at some point we could, you know, get more, be more uh, kind of living side by side of nature? And if yes, how that would look like? Or maybe, you know, this this fortress conservation in air quotes model is the, the best we can hope for. And just, you know, like you said, we just need to make sure we have a very big fortress. So a lot of land. Yeah, I mean, it's at the moment, I think we're really on the cusp at a tipping point where we could go either way. Um, there's worrying noises from the new government that they're going to scale back stuff. If they go ahead with the idea to create the new funding system for farming, where farmers will actually get paid to restore nature rather than farming in an unproductive, unprofitable way, that could make the difference. And that's why so many people are so worried and so angry at the moment that it might disappear because it's a I think it's a once in a generation opportunity to fundamentally change the incentive system for farming so that high quality farming that's producing food efficiently. Great. That's 
absolutely essential for the country. But there are so many unproductive farms where actually it's the only reason they exist is because of government bailouts and they're producing very little poor quality food. It would be so much better if those spaces were incentivized to look after that land for nature. That would create space, that would create the opportunity, and that would create funding to make this happen on a huge scale. So But that's what happened on NEP, right? That it was a similar story that absolutely. the farming was just not viable financially. Absolutely. And then there are many farms out there where it isn't, but because of the current subsidy system, they can carry on doing that and they're incentivized to carry on doing that. But it's not really in anyone's best interest to do it in that way. So a the new system, if they can get it right, it could unlock that, which is really exciting but also very worrying because there are rumors that they aren't going to do it now. So yeah. we're, we're really hang, hanging in the balance at the moment. If that goes ahead, I'm quite optimistic that we can get this, you know, what we need, what this country really needs is, is lots and lots of small projects that connect together. Hmm. You know, that, that's, that's what we need is at the moment, our, our bits of nature are in isolated little pockets which are heavily managed by people and they're not in very good condition and they're not connected to each other. Yeah, yeah. We, this is this habitat connectivity, right? This is like a like a factor called habitat connectivity, which really yeah. tells you how Absolutely. healthy the ecosystem is. Yeah, and in the UK, it's terrible. You know, it, it's, it's awful. So what we need is bigger, better, more wild spaces that are linked together. Um, It's going to take a long time for that to be on a proper scale and to have a real critical mass of space and size. But I think there is a real possibility of that happening. And that could open it up beyond just these um, fortress systems that you were talking about and actually have real wild spaces back in this country. You know, we've got these national parks that are farmed to within an inch of their life and don't have very much biodiversity in them at all. That could change. There's a huge amount that needs to change. There's also cultural things that need to change, but it, it could happen. And yeah, I'm optimistic it will. Uh, at this point, I'm, I'm optimistic. But I think the will of the people is, is there for it to happen. Finally, people are people are excited about this stuff and they want it to happen. Mm, good to hear that. What are the what are the uh, next big milestones for the Bison Project for the Wilder well, Green Project? This, this is the really exciting thing, is the two young female bison that we brought in from FOTA. Um, the plan is really, once the bull arrives, that they may breed next year. We might have young bison. We got a surprise. Um, just a few weeks ago, one of those bison gave birth to a calf. Wow. And this is the news that's currently been kept secret because it's a very young animal and obviously young animal effectively in the wild, there's all sorts of risks. But at the moment, she's doing really well. Um, we also don't want people going and trying to find her or see her. So we're delaying the news for a little while, but hoping to announce it in a couple of weeks, hopefully just before this podcast comes out. So we have a, she, we think she's a girl. So a, a new female bison that's been born in the project already, which is just incredibly ah, exciting. Very good. <laughs> so she's very the first good. one born in the project, so she will never have an artificial diet. She won't have any of the sort of the drugs and the, the things that are normally given to, to captive bison. So a proper wild bison with a with a wild diet from the So start. one of those those female bison that you brought were were, were pregnant. Yeah. Okay. Did you know about that? Nope, it's a complete surprise. Uh, oh, very, wow. It's very hard to tell if a bison's pregnant oh, okay. um, unless you actually do an ultrasound scan on them. And obviously, okay. we, it, it wouldn't come up with a in the blood work or anything. Nope. <laughs> no. So we had them fully health screened before they traveled, and it didn't show up. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a lovely surprise. Um, so we, we so we've got four bison, not three. Oh wow! Okay, that's that's a that's a good that's a good news. That's yeah. a good news. And, and future milestones, yeah, absolutely. Once they start breeding out there and expanding, and uh, we get the tunnels in place, and we can expand the area that they're in, it's yeah, it's it's really exciting to see. And the first scientific papers that'll be coming out, looking at exactly the impact these animals are having. You know, we've got huge amount of monitoring happening with the project. There's five different universities and the Natural History Museum involved in helping us monitor the project. So. Lots of research will be coming out of it. 
Perfect. Paul, listen, that's a, that's a fantastic job you guys are doing. I, I'm wishing you all the best. Uh, keep at it. And uh, like you said, with a project like that, maybe the tide starts to turn. Uh, so we have a little bit more nature and a little bit more of a, you know, diverse nature. And, and hopefully, at, eventually, that's going to start to spill out outside of the fenced areas. And even when you're walking on the fields, you will see some more animals um, not necessarily wolves, although I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind. To be we're, we're still a very long way from wolves. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, 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 all, it's all because they can't swim that well, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Paul, thanks a lot. Appreciate your time. No problem at all. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.